This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 359th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most prolific and distinguished documentary filmmakers in the world. The winner of an Oscar, a Grammy, and multiple Emmy and Peabody Awards, plus the International Documentary Association's Career Achievement Award in 2013, Esquire magazine wrote a decade ago that he was, quote, becoming the most important documentarian of our time, close quote. And he has only gotten better since then. Esquire further wrote that his, quote, documentaries are moral stories in which the forces of the moral universe surround and finally overwhelm the villain, close quote. Filmmaker magazine observed that, quote, his visually stylish, improbably witty and sadly informative films take the disparate shards of recent news cycles and connect the dots, creating grand politico-historical narratives from what the powers that be would like to characterize as isolated incidents and one-time events. And New York Magazine opined that he, quote, is not just an investigator or a crusader or an artist, but some rare hybrid of the three, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Alex Gibney. Over the course of our conversation, the 67-year-old and I discussed why he was such a late bloomer in the sense that his first real success, 2005's Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, which brought him his first Oscar nomination, only came when he was already 52 years old. How he has decided which subjects to tackle in his films, from torture in his 2007 Oscar winner Taxi to the Dark Side, to Scientology in his 2015 Emmy winner Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, how and why he directs so many more projects than the average documentarian, why it was so important to him that his latest doc, Totally Under Control, a heartbreaking look at how the Trump administration bungled its response to COVID, which he co-directed with Suzanne Hillinger and Ophelia Harachunyan, be released before November 3rd, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. 
What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you. And just always begin with a few basics for for listeners. Where were you born and raised, and, and what did your folks do for a living? So I was born in New York City, and I grew up first three years in New York, and then uh, my mom and dad divorced, and I, I grew up in New England, mostly Boston, and then a little bit in Connecticut. And I know your parents had kind of interesting lives of their own. Can you give a little sense of what they what they each did? So my mom, uh, particularly when we moved up to uh, Boston, she was a director of health education at the Children's Hospital in Boston. And then later on, um, she married the uh, chaplain at Yale University, a guy named Reverend William Sloan Coffin Jr., who was sort of famous for um, civil rights activism in the 60s and then later uh, later on for uh, anti-nuclear activism. And uh, when she was at Yale, she taught writing there. And my dad was a longtime journalist. He worked for Time, Newsweek, Life. He wrote a number of books, spent a lot of time in Japan, and then, you know, uh, later in his life became vice chairman of the board of editors of Encyclopedia Britannica and, 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 and lived in Japan for many years, actually was responsible for helping to translate the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is old school for what uh, <laughs> we do now. But uh, yes, <laughs> but uh, but he was responsible for translating it into Japanese. So. Obviously, there are certain themes that seem to run through most of your films, you know, abuses of power and hypocrisy and deception or self-deception. I just wonder if there was something early on that might have triggered those as interests of yours. I mean, was there was that, in, you know, were you encouraged to uh, kind of stand up to power as a kid or, or anything like that? Well, I mean. You know, you can see my my dad was a journalist and he did a good bit of investigative journalism. And also he he had a kind of preternatural tendency to do the opposite of what you're supposed to do to get ahead. Uh, what you're supposed to do is to suck up and kick down. And he used to suck down and kick up. And that's not <laughs> a very good career path if you're <laughs> if you're looking. And, and but it's a way of, of, of expressing you know, sort of contempt for authority. And I think uh, I, I, I intuited that from my father. My mother also was, uh, didn't suffer fools gladly. And and my stepfather was also a great inspiration in, in terms of his willingness to fight for what he felt was right and to take on powerful interests and, 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 and steer against them. So I, I guess you could say in my childhood, I, I, I did have some influences in that regard. Yeah. So you eventually wind up going to Yale. And I wonder, you yourself were now going to be, I think initially you were studying Japanese related stuff yourself. Was this just a matter of, you know, let's 
let's make dad proud? Or were you genuinely, what did you think you were going to do with that? Well, I, I was interested and I wanted to learn how to speak Japanese. You know, my younger brother's were living with him in Japan. I was not. And so, yeah, I was following in his footsteps to some extent. Um, but I got frustrated in the middle of college because I was spending all this time in the character dictionary. I mean, very much of, uh, you know, to, to learn how to read the newspaper means memorizing 2000 characters. And so that's most of what I was doing in college. And it was in college that I got the film Bug. I think my dad had it in mind for me that I would follow him into the family business, which was print journalism. But I got the film bug in college because back in the day, and I graduated from undergraduate school in 77, back in the day, they had all these film societies. And so every night there would be a screening on campus somewhere of a film, and there'd usually be pretty interesting films. And interestingly, there was sort of a mix of, of documentaries and scripted films, because back in the day anyway, and it's coming to be that way again now, but back in the day, there wasn't such a rigid distinction between them. They were both seen as films. So you could go to Gimme Shelter one night, a documentary by the Maisels Brothers, and another night go see, uh, you know, Exterminating Angel by Louis Bunuel and get turned on by both of them. So so it was great. And that's when I, I really caught the the bug and, 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 and figured that's what I wanted to do with my life. Well, I want to hone in on those two examples in particular that you gave, because I believe the Maisels were very influential in the sense that, you know, these were the first people to essentially free the camera and go out in the field as as documentary filmmakers. And along with, you know, there were others, but they were at the at the front of that. And then for I, I've also read that Exterminating Angel is something that has influenced a lot of your work. So just maybe a little bit more, if you can, about those two and then how you made this decision to at least start at UCLA Film School. Gimme Shelter was an interesting film, and, and, and I'm not sure I fully appreciated at the time why I was so interested in it. I've come to watch it over the years many, many times. And one of the things that I so admire about it is that, yes, it's a cinema verite film in, uh, in which the Maisel's brothers you know, are, are, are shooting with a portable film camera and hanging out with the Stones while they're on tour. But something remarkable happens at Altima, which is a murder. And, you know, the, there's a third director in that film that most people don't talk about. Her name is Charlotte Zwerin. She was the editor. It's interesting to see how she put that film together because she puts it together very much like a murder mystery. And so she creates out of these cinema verite moments a very powerful plotted structure, which nevertheless is free form in other ways. You know, it, it, it reflects on the stones looking at themselves, you know, uh, in the moment and, and, and realizing there's some moral complexity about what they were doing, particularly as they were advocating, you know, sympathy for the devil and this kind of, you know, let's let things loose and let's hire the hell's angels to, to protect people at Altamount and so forth and so on. And there's an also a, a, a riveting sequence in that film that's all about listening. You know, the whole band is listening to wild horses and you just see people listening. And it turns out that is a very interesting thing to watch. And it forces you also to listen to what's going on. So there's a lot about, there's a lot of meta stuff going on there, but it's grounded in this plot, which is a, a murder mystery. How and why was this person killed? And how did the stones fit into that? And the other murder that's happening is really, it's the murder of the 60s, right? That's the other thing that's being killed, that ethic of of, of, of it's all going to be beautiful that came out of Woodstock. 
not too long after, it turns rather ugly at Altamont. So there are a lot of things going on there. I'm not sure I realized them all at the time, but I was riveted by that film and it you know, made a really big impression on me. Exterminating Angel was just one of those films that lifted me off the floor when I saw it because the formal characteristic of, of Bunuel for all of his films, and this one in particular, is the, the camera is almost always static. Uh, the frame is always kind of sort of me- shot in medium shots or sometimes wide shots. But there is a, a level of caustic social commentary that is nevertheless, it, it doesn't feel, you, you, it's never a message film. Because so things are free flowing because a lot of he's a surrealist, right? It comes from the unconscious. And it's also full of this humor. You know, things are terribly funny. That film starts out where a bunch of people are like uh, the servants are feeling very comfortable. It's about to be a big dinner party. And they're all like "Mm," checking their watches. I got to go. And nobody says exactly why, but they know they got to leave. And the next thing you know, the, the people inside, you know, the, the, the guests, the, the, the rich people inside realize they can't leave the room and certain things take, <laughs> you know, get very, very <laughs> ugly in there. But it's all very mysterious and odd and, and, and full of forces that you can't control. But nevertheless, a sensibility that also, you know, is, is very much angry and, and looking at abuses of power in a way that's, that, that's quite critical. So funny, anarchic, and with a sense of rage focus at, at, at injustice. Which does sound uh, familiar to anyone who has seen <laughs> your films. So, uh, so, okay, so a decision is made by you at some point to start at UCLA Film School. I don't know how that went over with your folks and everybody at home, but then also to leave before completing a, a graduate degree. So take me through the thought process of all of that. I mean, I went to UCLA and, and, and it was one of the big schools. I had a feeling I would like it better than, than USC. I was out in LA at the time. You know, I was <laughs> scuffling, but I decided I, I wanted to go to film school. A pal of mine was going nearby at UC San Diego and learning under Manny Farber. Uh, I went to UCLA and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I left in part because I got a job working for the Samuel Goldwyn Company. And I never thought I was going to teach. I always thought I was going to be a filmmaker. And so, you know, I I felt I had learned a lot about what I needed to learn at UCLA. I never got to make my final film there, but I made a bunch of films there and and one important documentary. So I left and and I thought, well, this is this will be my chance. And indeed, I learned a ton uh, working for the Samuel Goldwyn Company, you know, everything from you know, doing recuts of, uh, uh, of films, I'm ashamed to say now, by people <laughs> like Paul Verhoeven and, 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 and Bill Forsyth, and also cutting exploitation trailers, which actually was a hugely useful tool, it, it, it turns out, and ultimately ending up being an editor on one of um, Sam Jr.'s features, uh, <laughs> an, an attempted knockoff of the Black Stallion with seals called the Golden Seal. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and and I guess, you know, I've tried to read as much as I, I can about your path to this point. And it seems like that period, I don't know if I have this right, but it ended with something to do with unionization or something of the company and that there were then just a number of years where I don't know how you were feeling about it, but on paper, it looks like you were kind of floating from one thing, one aspect of the 
business to the other and doing, you know, looks like you were always employed or, or working, but, but I, I don't get the sense that you were necessarily doing what you really ultimately wanted to be doing, which I would think was directing your own documentary features. Am I wrong about that? Yeah. So here's what happened. I mean, it was an awkward moment. You know, I, I during that period, I was very I, I was reading intensely. I, I remember taking a, a, a course, actually, at the undergraduate college at UCLA. I was there on Karl Marx. And so I was reading a lot of Marx's material and thinking very critically about capitalism and the way our political economy was structured. And and also at work, I felt I wasn't getting paid enough, wasn't being sufficiently recognized, even though you know, I had been given an entree by my dad to, to work for Sam Jr. And so there was a brief period where a, a small group of us, a very small company, thought maybe we'll start to think about organizing a union here, which I I think about it in retrospect. I'm like, really? You know, that small <laughs> company and, and this guy had given me a gig, but I ultimately decided not to go down that route. And I left the company um, after serving as associate editor on this uh, film. And then I, 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 I cut another film, but I, I ultimately decided that the role of an editor was not going to be my role. You know, I, I apprenticed under this wonderful editor, a guy named Robert Lovett, who was nominated for an Oscar for Cotton Club. And he had done a lot of lovely films with a, with a number of very powerful directors. But, you know, Bob, it, it's hard being an editor because you see all the mistakes. You're charged with fixing the mistakes. But you're never really out front, particularly in the it's different in documentaries. But for features, you can't it's very almost impossible to fix a film in the cutting room if it hasn't been shot properly. Now, I think it's getting easier now, in part because of what documentaries did. So I, I wanted to make films. And, you know, one of the things that I found so appealing about docs was that you didn't have to go through this horrible development process that you had to go through in scripted features. And I was certainly interested in scripted features. You could just go make them um, if you could. And ideally what should have happened is that I should have apprenticed myself to somebody, but instead what I decided was, okay, I'll just go out and raise some money and start making films, even while I'm writing scripts and such. Well, <laughs> it turned out that was a long, long road and uh, I wasn't getting anything done. And, and so I had to take all sorts of side gigs like, you know, being a freelance journalist, uh, doing PR for the Olympic Arts Film Festival, scuffling, doing whatever I could to make a living while I tried to, you know, live the dream. And for a long time, nobody paid much attention to me. And I there were a lot of jobs I applied for. I couldn't get them. Um, so it was a bleak and difficult period, as my wife would tell you. But then slowly but surely, I began to start making uh, some docs and uh, for television. But it wasn't really until, geez, I joined forces with a, um, a pal of mine, Mark Levin, who had made a big feature at um, that, that took the Sundance Film Festival by storm called Slam. And Slam was a very innovative feature because it really combined the worlds of documentary and fiction. And so that's always what I wanted to be a part of was a company that did both. So when Mark got a bunch of money, this would be late 90s. And now, you know, we're dealing with like a 10 year period where I did some TV docs, but nobody probably would have heard of them. And I really wanted to be at a company that did both. And I went there. 
Uh, I joined Mark in New York. He got some money to to put the company together. And then maybe the next big break for me was apprenticing on a, a film series called The Blues, which was executive produced by Martin Scorsese. It was a series of docs on the blues by feature filmmakers. Marty was one, Antoine Foucault was one, Vim Vendors, Mike Figgis. And that was a game changer for me because I got to see up close how, you know, fiction film directors treated documentary. And so they had great respect for real life. But at the same time, they had a stylistic vision of how they wanted to be the authors of those films. And and, and and that changed everything for me. It was like, oh, there's no rule book here. You can do what you want. <laughs> well, and one thing I came across that you said was that, quote, it was hard because I never had a mentor, close quote. And then it the first one turned out to be vendors. Why was he particularly influential for you? Well, I was a producer on the whole series. So my job is to kind of set up the mechanism for people to operate under, the archival systems, all of that. But the, the, the director with whom I worked most closely um, on a day-to-day level was Vim. And, you know, he was an idol of mine. I, I, you know, I'd seen a number of his films, but particularly Wings of Desire, I thought was masterful. And, and also he had, he had done Doc. So I thought, great. Um, and, and I worked very closely with him. You know, I went down to Mississippi when we were shooting and I, 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 I shot camera on a couple of the concert sequences we did. <laughs> um, and we were doing, using these small DV cameras, as they were called at the time, digital video cameras. So it was just learning how he approached things and how he thought through things. And that film, as it happened, Soul of a Man, it's called, also used a hand-cranked 35 millimeter film camera to shoot the recreation. So he was wildly inventive, um, had a great sense of, uh, of whimsy, but also formal rigor. So it was, a, it was just a great education. You know, I, I never, ever, ever forgot that. And he was very generous in terms of allowing me to come on board and, and really play a, you know, an important role. So that series on PBS, The Blues, came out in or debuted in 2003 and two years later is when I think most people really you know discovered you as a as a director yourself with Enron the smartest guys in the room which ended up with being your first Oscar nomination I think really put you on the map in a whole different way and so I just want to ask though you know at the outset of that project and I'm going to try to you know briefly touch on each one of the of of a a handful of the, the great ones that you've been a part of, but at the, you know, and try to gather, you know, the big lessons along the way at the outset of that one, I just want to note, you didn't have audio tape of the Enron traders. You didn't know that you were eventually going to be able to have this top female executive from the company appear. In fact, it didn't look like probably anyone was going to appear from the company and you were going to have to tell a very complicated and dense story that in your own words, when you, I, I think when you started to tell your editor that you were going to do a section on mark to market accounting, uh, she was on the verge of tears. So, <laughs> so you know, it's not like you bit off a small piece for your first kind of solo effort here. So, I guess I just want to ask, what did you think you had that justified? pursuing this in the first? 
Well, that's a good question since a whole lot of other people said, what the hell are you doing this for? We've had it up to here with Enron. Everybody's been telling us about this. Why would you bother to do a film about it? The short answer to your question, though, is I had a book. And there was a wonderful book that was written by Peter Elkind and Bethany McLean. And what the book showed was that the Enron story wasn't about numbers at all. It was about people and how good people go wrong. And that was really interesting. So suddenly I approached the story really in terms of these characters and how they and, and how their hubris and ultimately their delusional behavior. You know, it started as a theme that I would then develop over time, this idea of noble cause corruption, because they thought they had this new vision of capitalism. It, it corrupted them and made them think that when it wasn't working, it was OK to cheat because... After all, they were in pursuit of a good cause. So it was knowing that I had those powerful characters that made me want to go on that road. And and the film is a is a kind of a wild mix. I mean, if I look at it now, it's 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 fun. I mean, it's it's got a powerful recreation of a suicide. It has what I would call metaphorical archive. We use archive not to illustrate things, but to sort of metaphorically give you the feeling of what things might have been like. It, it, it uses music as a kind of toe-tapping uh, chorus. And, and, it, and it did end up, you know, I mean, the hard part was we didn't have very much money, and which meant that we were on a pretty tight schedule. So we couldn't do what I do now, which is to take a long time to do things. We had to focus, and, and, and therefore we had to keep adjusting the narrative to the material we got. So when we got these audio tapes of the Enron traders, suddenly the California section was much bigger than it had been in the book. And I learned the most important lesson, which was if you stick too rigidly to your plan that you start out with, you're lost. Because at the end of the day, you can only make a film with really good material. And so you go, you, you adjust the narrative to where the good material is. And, and early on in my career, I think I was far too rigid about establishing a plan, sticking to the plan. And the films were clear and they were concise, but they didn't have a lot of soul. And, and, and the reason is because I wasn't willing to say, oh, this is interesting, let's go here, which would have been, in a funny way, the, the lesson of those two films we started talking about, which is go to that material, go, go to where the good stuff is and find a way to build a story out of that. So that film came out when you were 52, which is later than <laughs> Wait, most people have their right. first, yeah. first big success. That's a, a lesson to people to keep, keep going. Uh, so at that, after that point now, you're on a lot more people's radar. And it's my understanding that you are at some point approached by, I guess, an attorney or somebody who says, I liked Enron. I want to give you some money to make your next film. And this is what I would like it to be. Can you share how this how this led to Taxi to the Dark Side two years later? Yeah, yeah. I was on a panel with a guy named Don Glaskoff. I was on a panel about Enron. And uh, Don was a, a real estate attorney who knew a lot about deal making. And, and that's why he was on the panel. But he came up to me afterwards. He was also very interested in human rights. Came up to me afterwards and said, would you be interested in doing a film about torture if I could raise the money? And it's like, oh. And then somebody else, another uh, friend of mine came along, a guy named Rob Johnson, who I had known. I met on the Blue Series. He introduced himself in the Blue Series as Robert Johnson. 
Now, you know, uh, it wasn't <laughs> the man from the crossroads, but, you know, right. it seemed like kismet. This is a guy who had worked for George Soros. And he was one of those people who would go and spend time looking at a country to see if they should go short or go long on Japan or Sweden. So he was also interested in this subject. And he said he would help raise money. So I thought, maybe I'll do it. But it wasn't until I talked to my dad, because it's such a grim subject. I was hard, having a hard time thinking about doing it, because would anybody watch it? But my father, who had been an interrogator in World War II, uh, he was on Okinawa, in fact, and he said, you have to do this because he was so deeply offended about what was happening with Cheney, Rumsfeld, the dark side and all that. that he said, you absolutely must do this. So I, 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 I took it on board. And we should just tell uh, listeners if they need a reminder, Taxi is part of the title because we're talking, you know, the film centers on this on this young man, I think 22 year old taxi driver in Afghanistan, uh, Dilawar, who was killed after five days in American custody in December 2002. And then the dark side part of the title is because that's what Dick Cheney, that's where Dick Cheney said American intelligence was going to have to go after 9-11. I just want to ask you specifically, you know, uh, because that film is going to be one that you'll always be associated with, ends up being recognized with, uh, with an Oscar win, not, a, not, you know, two nominations in three years, this one you win. How did you specifically learn about and decide to center the film on this one particular individual. The lesson learned from Enron was do a story. In other words, don't do a film about a topic, do a story and invest in human characters. And as I was doing my reading, I came across a story that had been written in the New York Times by Tim Golden. I believe it was two parts and it was all about the Delaware case. And to me, that was a fantastic story because I mean, it was a terrible story, um, but it, it centered on a true innocent. I mean, Dilawar was a true innocent and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and murdered in Bagram. But interestingly about his story, if you follow the threads of his story, you know, he's murdered in Bagram in Afghanistan. The team that's there then is transferred to Abu Ghraib. Many of the people, a couple of the people who were on the taxi with him were sent to Guantanamo. And so I had, I, I wanted to do a story that would tell not a particular tale, but would show the system of torture, because that was really the offensive thing to me about the Bush administration. They established a system of torture. Dilawar's story con connected to the whole thing. And so he's at the heart of the film, but there's not that much time spent on Dilawar himself. In fact, I think I only had two or three photographs of him, except for the autopsy photographs, which I found very late in the process. But you know, it was finding that story by Tim Golden that made me understand that I, that I had a movie there. And, you know, just to come back to sort of the, the cool style decisions, stylistic decisions of your films with Enron, I know it had sort of been shooting with reflective surfaces to, to kind of um, show how, you know, there's this dichotomy between how things seem and how they really are. And then in this case, you've said that Sergio Leone was a, was an influence of how you decided to aesthetically, you know, make this film look. I don't know if Sergio Leone was, he, he may have been in some way, but there was a, there was a sense that I, I needed in such a complicated story to find a way of simplifying things. And so what I ended up doing was to, was to generate a painted backdrop 
and I use that backdrop to shoot for to, as the background for all the individuals who had to do with the Bagram prison. The other people I shot in their offices, wherever it was. But it meant that as soon as you saw that backdrop, you kind of emotionally were drawn to that place. So it, it made a very complex story, kind of simple in visual terms. And we carried that backdrop with us everywhere we went. I remember I carried it to Birmingham, England. You know, it wasn't green screen. We had this rolled up painted backdrop that, that, that I felt made it very important. And then like in Enron, where we came up with a kind of a graphical style that seemed appropriate. On this one, we had these interstitial pieces that were intentionally made to look like they were the internal mechanism of a Xerox machine, because so much had to do with documents and redactions and copies of copies of copies. The, the idea that if you sifted through the material, you'd actually find a secret that was hiding there for you to be revealed. Because so much about this was keeping this under wraps. So those were some of the things that, that contributed formally. I mean, Leone was always a big influence on me. Once Upon a Time in the West, to me, is one of the great films ever. I keep going back to that one, too. But there's a later film I did that was, I think, much more influenced by him. So I think that you seem to have really become particularly uh, prolific in the years after Taxi to the Dark Side with, and I don't know exactly what year you formed uh, Jigsaw, your production company. Do you remember what if it was after that? Well, it's complicated because for a long time I had a company called Jigsaw. It was called Jigsaw Educational Productions. It was actually a nonprofit company which suited its profit profile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and basically it, it you know it was a uh, it allowed us to accept grants and and, and it never made a profit. Um, you know, it just took in enough money so that I could keep an assistant and a part-time bookkeeper going. And that's part of the reason why I began to do more than one project, because earlier in my career, when I was doing TV documentaries, I came to the end of one big project. I sat around waiting for the phone to ring. It didn't ring. It's a long period I went through finishing one project and starting another. So, you know, it was always jigsaw. Later on, I decided I got some investment to expand the company. But that was a, that was a good many years later. And I would imagine that was that was sort of within a few years after Taxi, right? That's right. And so the reason I bring this up is just that I know that you had a probably the the nightmare ordeal of what it's like as a filmmaker to have your you know you make a great product, you do everything you're supposed to do, and then you have a theatrical distributor that I guess was in the process of going bankrupt and wasn't able to really in this, this is think film, wasn't able to really do anything with it. You then have a television deal, as I recall with discovery channel, which then decides, Oh shit, we better be careful with the subject matter. Uh, and they pulled out in the end, it, it worked out, I think on HBO and things, things obviously panned out fine, but it makes me wonder if th that whole drama is what made you decide to really focus on building up your own, operation so that you didn't have to be as dependent. You're always going to have to work with a distributor or whatever, but you you didn't, ha you could have more buns in the oven. You could have more things, just a little bit more control. I think that's right. I, I, I wish I'd been as methodical in my analysis of the problems uh, after taxi, as, uh, as you suggest that, but I think it was rattling around in the back of my mind that, that the way 
if you're going to do these difficult films and if you're going to pursue a path that allows you to make them, you need some stability. And that means you have to take on more projects. You need to surround yourself with a lot of uh, talented and, um, and, and capable people who can provide some sense of continuity and in infrastructure so you're not reinventing the wheel every time. And, and, and also that to, to allow you some financial stability so that if you go through a bad patch or you're having trouble with a film, you're not suddenly sunk, that you have to quickly finish it or, 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 or start going to financiers that you do, don't really want to go to or to do films that you don't really want to do. So all that was rattling around in the back of my mind because Taxi was a struggle. I mean, every step along the way. And there was also the MPAA wouldn't approve our, our, our trailer because we, we used a photograph that they found offensive. And they said it Jesus. reminded them of Saw, uh, the the horror series. But it was a it was a it was an actual photograph of of, yeah. of somebody who was hooded, right? A detainee who was hooded. And I said, yes, it is offensive. It's real. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was a lot of lot of drama in that film. But yeah, it did prove to me that however long it took for my feeble mind to put the pieces together, that that it would be a good idea to establish at some point a company that that was more than a bookkeeper and a and, and I, I think we should also just note that, you know, probably it wasn't the most fun period in your life either, where I know both your father and your stepfather passed away during the course of the making of Taxi. You um, additionally, you know, are surrounded by these horrifying, probably traumatic images and stories all day. And I, I did read that you said that it was kind of a blessing in disguise that you at the same time were having to edit the Hunter S. Thompson documentary, which has its own weighty stuff as well, but it's a it's very different. There's so, a lot of laughs uh, in Gonzo, but th that yes. was what allowed me to understand that if I could get two films into the cutting room, that actually I could work on them at the same time. Because my view about working with editors is I work with editors who have a very powerful sense of story and a very powerful sense of uh, of authorship themselves. So I don't need to be behind them. You know, like Bedard apparently did, you know, like tapping people when he wanted them to cut, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and they would have a certain value in terms of moving out of the cutting room and then coming back. And then you can see things from afar rather than being, you know, enmeshed in the detail. So so it ended up being it happened by accident, but it ended up being the key to to allowing me to work on a number of different projects at the same time, not doing them fast. Almost never until totally under control, doing them fast, but doing a number at the same time. Well, I want to ask you about that because like, you know, the first year when you really had just a unbelievable amount of output was 2010, where that year we have the release of Casino Jack in the United States of Money about Jack Abramoff, Client 9, The Rise and Fall of Elliot Spitzer, Freakonomics, and, and uh, another, and my question is just, you know, by that point now, so Jigsaw, you had a little bit of financing. You now have an in-house team, as I understand it, that grew and grew. But you're still, I mean, the there, there are people that, I, I cover the documentary community. People can get bitchy and jealous and whatever. And there are people that say, how is it possible that Alex is actually involved with all of these films when he's putting out so many? I want to just ask you to kind of clarify that. The, the, the critical thing is what we were just talking about a minute ago, which is that the films 
aren't made quickly. They're all made over a period of sometimes, I think the Armstrong lie took four years to do. Uh, and and the crazy, not insane, three years. You know, so they all take a long time. If I was doing verite films more, I think it would be harder to do what I do because when you're out in the field and if you're a one-man band like Fred Weissman is or two two-person, you know, crew, you're out there shooting every day and it's verite material and then you have to put it together. It, it's just not how I do it. I, I operate in a far more collaborative process. But... On the films that I direct, I'm there. I'm, I'm asking the questions. I'm going out. I'm doing the research. Now, I surround myself with a team that only does one thing. And so I can move back and forth between them. But I, I just learned a rhythm on, on those two films that made me understand that I, could, that I could do more than one thing at once if I had a group of talented, dedicated people who are, also, who are only focused on one thing. But, you know, if I'm shooting something... That's it. Like in, in the middle of shooting, uh, everything else has to go away because, you know, even in an interview situation, you have to be in the moment. You have to be utterly attentive to that. And for other films, it depends. Like Armstrong Lie, you know, I was on the road with Lance Armstrong a lot. I was out every day on the Tour de France. It, it, it was very hard for me to do anything else during that that period. But in the cutting room, it's different because you can... And and the beauty of having a little bit more stability is you can take a film to a certain point and then maybe you put it aside for a month or two. Because actually, I mean, if it were possible from a budgetary standpoint, that would actually be a great creative solution for people. Because you get to a moment where you're desperate on schedule. If you put it away and then come back to it a month or two later, you see all the problems instantly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's how that's how I did it. And, and a lot of people kept saying, oh, look, he cranks them out. It's just, the simple truth is that's just wrong. They're all slow, but I have a peculiar ability, uh, to, um, a multitask. to multitask. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a peculiar <laughs> ability to multitask and, <laughs> and to move from one thing to another and to leave this one behind and then focus intensely on that thing. Uh, but it, it, it's only really possible when you've got those films in the cutting room, mind you, even when I'm in the cutting room, I will go off and shoot from time to time yeah. because you find things that you need to do. But 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 by having dedicated teams who are only doing one thing and then I move back and forth, I, I found a, made a way to make it work, which was the only way I could slowly build up a company that had some lasting power was to do enough of those projects. So I wasn't a victim of that situation where you finish the film and then there's, no, there's nothing there to pay the rent. Right. I hope we can do sort of a rapid fire, just a question about a number of these, because I want people, I want to sort of remind people if they have seen these or whet their appetite, if they haven't, to go back and check these out. So as we build towards the present, just quick thing about a bunch of these. So Casino Jack, I understand Abramoff was willing to meet with you in prison, but not on camera, obviously. How do you decide to proceed with that film anyway? I was going to make it anyway, whether he was going to talk to me or not. And and I've done that on a number of films. And that was one where the story was just so good. So some people make decisions based on access. I make decisions based sometimes on not. Same thing with Client 9. You know, when we started, I didn't know for sure that Elliot Spitzer was going to cooperate. That's the one film where everybody cooperated. The escort, <laughs> all of his enemies, Elliot Spitzer, 
everybody cooperated, you know, um, Joe Bruno. I mean, everybody. Uh, I don't know if that'll ever happen again, but it was uh, it was really an incredible thing. It's one of my favorite films that I've done because everybody's there. It's it's really a vivisection of power in America. Well, and so for for my client nine question, it's it is sort of the inverse of the Casino Jack one. Why did Elliot Spitzer? Why do you think he did speak with you? What was what's in it for him? At the end of the day, the scandal had happened, but I think he wanted an opportunity to make the argument about why his career was meaningful. That is to say, I wasn't just going to do the scandal. I was going to do the rise and fall. Right. So he would have an opportunity to make his case why he had done something important. And in exchange, I would have the opportunity to ask him why he allowed himself uh, to be taken out. So that's that's yeah. why. Maya Max McCulpa, the first of your two docs dealing with religion and, and corruption within religions. With that one, what do you hope people take away from such a disturbing story? We all kind of have a sense that and we've read the news that you know, there is sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. This is such a disgusting case where the guy is preying on deaf kids. What is the end goal in telling a story like that? Do you have a, do you basically, do you set out, do you have to have a thesis statement in your own mind? This is why I'm doing this. I think it's useful to have a proposition or a hypothesis, but it's also important to be able to be willing to question that hypothesis as you go. I was interested in this story because you know, of the horrific nature of it. That is to say, a, a priest preying on deaf children, which was about as pernicious as you can get. But I was, I really took the story on because these deaf kids, when they grew into men, actually decided to take their battle all the way to the top and they sued the Pope. And so kind of like Taxi to the Dark Side, I wanted to show the granular detail of abuse you know, in a particular situation, but also how that spread to a system. And the system was one of enabling priests and also creating a system in which you actually coddle and 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 allow this practice to go on for year after year after year. Because again, back to this theme I'm so interested in, the end justifies the means. We're holy men. It's a holy religion. It's a vow, you know, we're on a mission from God. Therefore, you know, if we coddle a priest or two, even though he may have abused some children, that 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 that's the road that leads yeah. to hell. Yeah, yeah. So that was 2012. Then in 2013 is We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. And I think that maybe the lesson here is that it's sometimes better when you don't get what you want going in. In this case, the assumption, I guess, was, hey, it would be great if we get Assange. Then he apparently says, only if you give me a million dollars, which was never going to happen. And so as a result, you end up focusing on then Bradley, now Chelsea Manning. And that was uh, uh, probably better in the long run anyway. It was much better. And Chelsea is a terribly important figure. And it's it's hard for people to remember now. But she was very much a forgotten figure at the time. Everybody was like, Julian Assange is the leaker. Julian Assange wasn't the leaker. Julian Assange was the publisher. And the person who took all the personal risk was was Chelsea. And so when Assange wouldn't give us access, you know, it became a story about both people. 
And, and interestingly, their relationship, which was also never as it had been originally portrayed, there was a relationship. And ultimately, Assange dropped Chelsea Manning, which in some way provoked Chelsea to reach out to somebody else who betrayed her. Right. That same year, 2013, was the Armstrong lie, which, as you mentioned, had been in the works for several years. Initially, this, I think, was going to be your your uh, almost feel good, Doc. <laughs> Isn't yeah. this great? This, yeah, exactly. Right? Finally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and then just, you know, as you're apparently you've gotten so far along that you've got narration from Matt Damon. It's going to be called The Road Back. It's this triumphant uh, comeback story of Lance Armstrong. And then you find out he's been lying to you. So the question here is much the same as, you know, why did this guy come out of retirement to, you know, even though he'd essentially gotten away with with his uh, his misdeeds the, the, the first time? Why did he come out of retirement then? Why did he come back and why did he why did he agree to come back and talk to you? I, I don't. Is there something about certain people that you maybe have you found in the course of dealing with a lot of these kind of strange folks? Is there something about people that they almost want to get caught? I think in the case of Lance Armstrong, I think it's true. And maybe in the case of Elliot Spitzer, too. I mean, they also court danger. These people are risk takers. And that's kind of what makes them feel alive, you know, is being on the edge of risk. So so it's probably a combination of the two. Uh, but it was fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I developed a relationship with Lance as I was on the road with him. Interesting for Lance, I think he felt he owed me in some way. And so after I was able to work things out with his lawyer, which was a long and arduous process, <laughs> he was willing to sit down again. And my disappointment was in some ways the studio who was behind that film wouldn't allow us to include some of the information that he gave us because <laughs> this is how lawyers think sometimes because Lance had lost his credibility. So the, he was telling us, giving us more inside stuff about the doping uh, that I wasn't able to include because it made other people look bad. Uh, but by this time he had lost credibility. So I wasn't able to include it anyway. It's a, but that, that is a, that was a fascinating film because it, it had to be remade from top to bottom. We had we were done and we had to pull it apart and put it back together again. And and that is the the great and horrible beauty of documentary. <laughs> yeah, the story never ends. <laughs> OK, so now uh, in 2015 is one that maybe is even more closely associated with you than Taxi to the Dark Side, which is going clear Scientology and the prison of belief, where looking at what was transpiring inside this kind of mysterious religion. I know that Lawrence Wright's book was sort of a jumping off point, but I guess just to play devil's advocate, which actually takes on a different meaning in this <laughs> in this case, but don't all religions sort of fail to stand up to scrutiny when examined under a microscope closely? I mean, uh, or is there something about Scientology that particularly pissed you off? In a way, your question contains the answer for me in terms of why I did this film, because I was offered to do films about Scientology a number of times in the past. And I always felt, uh, I wasn't sure it was worth it because I knew it would be a hassle. They come after you, but also it's just a small group. It's not that big a religion. And, and I found out doing the film, it's even smaller than I thought. But what Larry did in his book by 
exploring this notion of the prison of belief, that gave me a window into something much bigger. And, and it, it became a universal. And if you look at Scientology, the easy thing to do about a film about Scientology would say, look at all this crazy shit. Isn't that crazy? But actually what the film is about is about a number of very smart, very incisive people who nevertheless got caught up in a religion, lost themselves, and then found their way out. Now that seems to me is a much more powerful and poignant notion of, of, of how we all have to reckon with the prison of belief in our lives. And, and in a way made the cult, now it's weird and, and fucked up in many ways, but made the cult more of a universal than a, a kind of peculiarity. If you could have gotten David Miscavige or Tom Cruise to sit down and speak with you for that one, what's the one question you would have most wanted to ask each of them? It's a good question. My answer would probably be, why limit it to just one? <laughs> if I had them in the chair, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I really wanted, I mean, I wanted to ask Tom Cruise about Nicole Kidman. And I, and I wanted to get at this issue of just because you believe in something, why does that make you feel that it entitles you to a level of cruelty that is simply unforgivable? I mean, that's the that's the essential question. But it's hard to ask questions like that. That's why when you sit down with somebody in the chair, it's almost better if you allow them a bunch of time or if they allow you a bunch of time, because you really want to ask concrete questions as a way of getting to a larger truth. And that takes you, I think, ultimately somewhere more interesting. I've heard you might be open to doing a sequel to the Scientology doc. Is that true? It's possible. It's possible. And Larry and I have explored also the possibility of a scripted film or oh, a series. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That same year, Steve Jobs, The Man in the Machine, 2015. So there had been the Walter Isaacson book. In this case now, what, you weren't getting cooperation from the widow, from the company. What did you think that a documentary could reveal that had not necessarily already come out through other studies of this guy? What I was interested in, and, and I say it in the film, was asking a question like, when a businessman dies, why were so many people weeping? You can understand why his family and his friends would weep. They were close to him. They knew him well. But, you know, average strangers were weeping. What does that say about him and about us? So that was kind of the starting question. And also, it ended up becoming a film about corporate values and, and how the glitter of a beautifully beveled screen can sometimes blind us to the pain and injustice and agony that goes into making something like that. And also blind us to, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a level of wealth and power at that scale, blinds us to criminality and, and, and lets us operate with different kinds of rules. So it was a journey. I mean, that film was a real journey because I asked a simple question and I didn't know the answer when I started, but it took me into that territory that I found very powerful. A lot of his friends, um, you know, still get upset with me about that. But I, I know some people who were close to him at the company who feel I got it right. But it's a it's an alternative view. Yeah. 2016, zero days, uh, looking at the whole Stuxnet situation and cyber warfare. And in this case, I thought it was very interesting that you said that this sort of went back to a conversation you had around taxi 
to the dark side in terms of what you should be looking for when you're looking for a story to tell. Do you remember which uh, conversation I'm referring to here? I'd come across in a... No, tell there was me. Something, I've forgotten. Something, <laughs> <laughs> something with a, a, a war correspondent that had said to you, go not where the attack was, but where the next attack is going to oh, be. Oh, right. That's interesting. Yes. I mean, and that's... Zero Days in a Way was a film that was slightly before its time. It came out before the hacks in the election and and we're now so consumed with cyber but it was it was a sea change moment but nobody had recognized it yet so that's what made me want to go there i thought this is going to be the future of warfare and also this moment has opened up a frontier of reckless and ruthless behavior that may bedevil us for years and years and years to come and nobody has paused to think about that so that made me want to do it, even though that may have been the most challenging film of all, because how do you make a film about a computer virus? I was going to say, <laughs> you know, that was that was really hard. Well, and, and, and I, I don't know if ironically is the right word, but part of the way you did do it was to visualize it like a real virus, which we're now here we are. So um, but anyway, last before Totally Under Control is Citizen K. We had come through the 2016 election. You decide to look closer at Russia and this oligarch who had profited off a lot of people in a questionable way after the fall of the Soviet Union and then winds up in jail. And I guess the question is here, do you believe that he actually kind of grew a conscience which was, or, or grew as a person while in jail, which is sort of the the one of the central questions. I do. I think he changed. Uh, people may feel I'm naive for that view, but I, 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 I think I'm right. I think he did change. And this film, by the way, is the one that owes the most to Once Upon a Time in the West. That's what I thought okay. I was making. Was uh, <laughs> okay. uh, I, I call it Once Upon a Time in the East. So, um, you know, both in terms of how we approach the music and sort of the, the, the scale of the landscape between the, the intense focus of people, you know, powerful people and then the, the, the huge landscape that they inhabit. But that's what I, I do believe in. And, and that's ultimately it was an investigation because I looked very hard into the murder. There's a murder at the heart of this story. Was he culpable? Was he responsible? But. Ultimately, you know, if you think about oligarchs going to prison, it, it would be very hard to imagine Donald Trump, say, being sent to the gulag for 10 years <laughs> and coming out and saying, life is not about having, it's about being. <laughs> very hard the to first think. part sounds good, though. <laughs> um, OK, so this leads us to Donald Trump and and this movie that just to give people a sense of the timeline to really think about with totally under control pandemic really exploded into the public eye at least in march you decided with uh two colleagues to to make this film and get it out before the election for reasons i'll i'll leave it to you to talk about if you'd like we're talking on october 30th you finished it earlier this month you are you you got it out in time and I guess just initially the seed of why you wanted to deal with this very fresh, raw subject and knowing it would have to be a race to the finish, I guess, had COVID really personally affected 
people in your orbit? And why was it important to get it out before the election? So COVID had, look, COVID affected all of us. Let's just say that. But, uh, you know, a friend of mine had died from COVID and another friend had spent two weeks on a ventilator, came very close to death. And I'd already started in a way um, as an executive producer on Matt Heinemann's, you know, COVID doc, which looks at the frontline uh, efforts of doctors and, and nurses in New York to try to save people's lives. But I was, you know, running a fever of rage over how badly the response was being handled by the federal government, or at least that's the way it seemed to me. Again, you start with a hypothesis and you, you, you see. So it felt like if that is true and we're in an election year, then this is important information for voters to have. You know, if you're going to make a judgment on a public figure, I didn't do this at the behest of the DNC. It was more like as a citizen, how are we to hold our government to account? And so let's do a film that looks at the federal response and see thumbs up, thumbs down. Was he responsible? Was he not responsible? Was the administration at fault? What happened? And there were really two ideas I had in that regard. One was to focus on the early days and the decisions that that could have been made that would have made everything very different, number one. Number two, I didn't want there to be an excuse of this just happens. So I wanted to compare uh, the situation here with that of another country. And I picked South Korea because both countries, U.S. and South Korea, discovered COVID positive patients on the same day, January 20th. So you're starting at the same starting line. And that was all I had, really. Uh, and on that basis, I raised money. Luckily, I was able to get money very quickly. And then I, I, this was one I definitely could not do by myself uh, and could not direct and produce by myself. So I, I needed colleagues, full-blown collaborators. And so I reached out to Ophelia Harutunian and Suzanne Hillinger and said, let's do this together. But I want this out <laughs> in early October. And and they crazily, uh, but thankfully, because they're so extraordinary, signed up to to go along for the ride. And what that meant, though, with this with this rapid timeline was that while we were all still even figuring out what we were dealing with, which I guess we still are to some extent, but at, really at the early days, you had to figure out how do you get people to talk to you who are inside? And also, how do you logistically even film them if they agree to talk to you. And I think that, you know, for people who haven't seen the film yet, there is some new technology that you sort of devised here. And I wonder if you can just kind of talk about those two things, about how you get people who had a lot to lose and were dealing with a lot of stuff on their their day jobs here to sit down with you and then just how you how you actually did it. I mean, the how you did it is a little easier to explain. Um, You know, that's where actually having the experience of doing a bunch of films ended up being valuable. You know, I knew what Heinemann is doing inside the hospitals. We were also shooting on another film, uh, Agents of Chaos, and and had to do some last minute interviews, but had to make it COVID safe. But this one was going to be, you know, a lot of interviews fast. Uh, and some people, and particularly for a film about COVID, but honestly, just for safety of everybody, you needed to make them feel that this wasn't going to put them at risk. So we actually invented, or Ben Bloodwell, a longtime colleague, he, going back to Enron, he was AC on Enron and has shot a number of other films for me, you know, came up with the COVID cam. We would literally deliver to somebody's doorstep. And then once turned on, 
Ben could operate the f-stop and the and the and the focus remotely, but that person who is the interview subject wouldn't actually have to have any human contact whatsoever. Great. And then, of course, we had another setup, which was a little bit more invasive. We go to an Airbnb and do a big setup with 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 curtains and and a kind of a zoom device over the lens, so that people are looking straight into the lens, but they're seeing our face. And because we wanted a zoom aesthetic. But we didn't want it to look bad like Zoom images look. Right, we wanted right. it to look good. So everybody's looking into the camera. But we did it in a way where everyone was safe and it looked good. So, And you guys got some great people before we knew Rick Bright, who's now out there more. I mean, this was – you were speaking to these guys early on. The Max Kennedy thing is just mind-blowing. This 20-year-old kid that was – part of the Jared Kushner operation that which itself is like a Keystone cops situation. If, if only, you know, if only it wasn't so tragic, you were filming long enough to be able to, or, or the cut was open long enough to be able to insert that card at the end, acknowledging that Trump himself had. <laughs> it was the day after we literally the day after we finished. Oh my God. Two, so you, two, you, a, <laughs> 2 AM the morning after we had fully finished. I was sleeping so soundly. I got a call from <laughs> Tom Quinn, the head of Neon, yeah. who yeah. let me know that um, Donald Trump had just positive, just tested positive for COVID. I was like, and so you, <laughs> you got to reopen the the film there. Um, but I guess you know, from being so immersed in this stuff for for the, this whole year, I, I just want to get your take on sort of the conclusions about why we and specifically the Trump administration failed so badly and, and Trump even more specifically. I want to just quickly set up, though, the question a little bit more, because based on the Woodward interview from February, he clearly understood as early as then the actual nature and danger of the virus. And yet he never got serious about mask wearing. He never invoked the Defense Production Act in order to make more PPE. He constantly argued that our numbers were only bad because we were testing more than other countries. He continued and continues to hold rallies in defiance of the protocols of his own task force. He is still saying we've rounded the turn and the list goes on. So I guess, is it your sense that he has actually convinced himself of his own bullshit or is he, does he know that he is lying? He knows that he's lying. Um, but like any good liar, in the moment, you have to convince yourself that what you're saying is right or you can't be convincing. Um, and, and that's the key to some of the other liars I've witnessed, you know, in my career. <laughs> I feel like I made a career of being lied Your to. Your specialty. Being yeah. lied to by people. <laughs> I'm nodding. Thank you for answering. Right, yeah. Thank you for not answering the question in a truthful manner. Um, so, yeah, he knows. And, and we know he knows because we, we heard the Bob Woodward, you know, interview. And, but it, it, it's actually before that. I mean, the original sin here for a, for a lapsed Catholic boy, um, the original <laughs> sin here is testing. You know, there was a snafu with testing. It was a technical problem at the CDC and at the FDA. But you see later in the film when Trump wanted to overrule or, 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 or make the FDA move fast when it came to hydroxychloroquine, he did it extremely fast. In this case, testing was on pause for a month. Now, a month 
when a virus is growing exponentially is an ep- epidemiologist nightmare. So that's where we lost, right there. And, and, and Trump knew we were losing, and Trump knew how dangerous the disease was, and he did it anyway. And I think it was just purely for self-motivated political advantage, because he thought maybe the virus won't be that bad, the economy will still be great. You know, um, but I think, I mean, the Woodward thing was on February 7th. I mean, we can't prove it, but he's getting presidential daily briefs going back to early January, which contains all these warnings about the virus. He knew, and that's the damning part of this. It's not incompetence, it's willful denial. It's willful what he does to um, put us all in a terrible situation. And how he can say anything else is beyond me. And and you got this film as you, you needed it out before the election. You've done that. This episode of our podcast is going up on Monday because I wanted this up before the election. And I want to ask you, though, you know, to maybe light a fire under the ass of anyone who hasn't yet voted. Let's just say Trump is reelected. You've seen how he's handled this when he thought his presidency is on the line. His uh, possibility of a second term is on the line. If he no longer has to worry about being reelected, do you think he's just going to go in, all in on this Scott Atlas nonsense of herd immunity or just drop, you know, continue to act? Like he's already telling people, you know, it's over. It's basically disappearing. You know, what would a second term of Trump look like as far as COVID? This is where it's really a matter of life and death. Hundreds of thousands of people will die if Trump is elected. I mean, people are going to die anyway because the disease is out there. But um, Trump pursuing the policies that he has shown us he is willing to pursue with a reckless disregard for human life, it's going to get worse. So if you're voting for Trump, you're voting for more death. I don't know how much more starkly I can put it. But um, when I say I believe that to be true, I don't think I need to say I believe that. I think the evidence is clear that that is the kind of policy he is willing and capable of pursuing that it doesn't matter to him that that many people die. He's shown that through his policy. We know that through the fact pattern. Last 30 seconds, if it's okay, just big picture stuff. Who's the best living documentary filmmaker not named Alex Gibney? Fred Weissman. Okay. And what is your outlook at this moment as we've established in this conversation? You sort of broke through later than most. Uh, You are as kind of, you're at the top of the documentary game. And as far as anyone who, who follows it knows, are you kind of, looking to the future, thinking I am excited to uh, continue making documentaries until I drop, hopefully many years from now? Or are you, I know you did the pilot for The Looming Tower, so is narrative kind of something you want to do more of? Just what's the what's the outlook for the future? So I do want to do more narrative, and I'm planning on doing it. And probably this next year, there will be a bunch more narrative in my future. And I'm really excited about that. That said, as I said before, you know, documentaries, I love documentaries. And I've always felt that, you know, scripted and docs, they're both films. Um, they just take different forms. In one, you write the script at the beginning. In one, you write the script at the end. 
um, but they're all about human life. The one thing I would like to adjust is, I mean, to this point, I have worked brutally hard in ways that 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 has been very difficult. And while I, I probably can't do anything else but that, it would be nice to look up a little bit more often and um, uh, see the horizon and look around me a bit more because I think it'll probably be not only useful, but also, uh, you know, they're, particularly for my family and, and uh, people around me, I'd like to spend a little bit more time with them. Good. Well, can't thank you enough for doing this. I love your work and uh, it's very special to get to talk to you this in depth. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Scott. And thank you for being so well prepared. I do appreciate yeah, that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Stay safe. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.